Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers and writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual Summer Writers Conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, El Presidente, Emeritus. Thank you, Gertrude, and hola, citizens. Welcome to the fifth episode of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I am your host, El Presidente Emeritus, Eric Fritschews. Today on the podcast, we're speaking with Georgia-based poet Dana Wildsmith. She was named a Poetry Fellow in the South Carolina Academy of Authors in 1992. That same year, she published her first book called Alchemy. Her first full-length collection of poems, Our Bodies Remember, was published in 1999. Her most recent book, One Good Hand, was a Southern Independent Booksellers Alliance Poetry Book of the Year nominee and was also nominated for Appalachian Book of the Year. A poem from that collection, called Making a Living, was read on Garrison Keillor's Writer's Almanac broadcast. Her poems have most recently been anthologized in the University Press of Kentucky's Listen Here, Women Writing in Appalachia Anthology, the Southern Poetry Anthology, and Writing by Ear. Wildsmith teaches writing classes throughout the United States, and in just a few short weeks will be teaching three workshops at the 2009 West Virginia Writers Summer Conference. Dana Wildsmith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. I'm glad to talk to a, a Georgia gal. You started oh, out yeah. started out life in Macon, Georgia, and I grew up near Macon, Mississippi. So we're at least from the same general latitude. Yeah, that's true. We're Southerners. <laughs> Unlike many of my brethren here in West Virginia who start crying when the thermometer hits 92, I'd wager you and I know more about heat and humidity than they do. True. I was in Okinawa, Japan a, a few years ago, and before I went over, everyone kept saying, oh, it's so hot and humid, you won't be able to bear it. And I got over there, and I thought, well, it's just like Savannah. <laughs> <laughs> you grew up the child of a Methodist minister, which meant your right. your father was transferred to a new church every, every, what, four years or so? Well, we actually stayed every five years, which for, at that time was longer than usual. So I moved every five years as I was growing up. It's kind of like being a military brat. I guess. Well, yeah, and then I was a military wife, so <laughs> so people ask me where I'm from, and I say nowhere. I was a preacher's kid who married a Navy man. <laughs> so I imagine this leads to lots of formative experiences moving from place to place. Sure. gives you lots of opportunity to think outside of uh, one particular regional box. You um, learn to be maybe, I, I think, a little more accepting, um, a little more open to new things when you move around all the time. I, I find it exciting. I've always enjoyed it. How did you first become interested in poetry? I apparently have written poetry all my life. I don't really remember a lot of it, but a few years back, my mother handed me some poems that I had written in middle school, which were very, very dark, of course, because I was a middle schooler, <laughs> and she had saved, and I think she had saved them as evidence, or in case I ever tried to murder her and daddy, <laughs> because they were full of angst and murder and murderous thoughts, and, um, you know, very typical middle schoolish, but... Um, the, I don't remember seriously writing until my daughter was born, which was really only a few years after middle school since I got married at 18. But um, I started writing because who can have a baby and watch a baby grow up and develop and not be moved to something by it? I was moved to poetry and then went on from there, decided I really liked writing poetry. It keys into me 
with me to um, music because I've always sung and I'm very, very um, involved in music. It's an uh, integral part of my life and uh, poetry fits that that niche, I think, along with music. So I, I started writing in my 20s and just kept going and didn't really think about doing anything with it much until I uh, happened to send some of my poems into the Heinemann Kentucky Writers Workshop and Appalachian Writers Workshop in Heinemann. And then after I sent them in, I thought, I don't have any right to be there. I'm not a real writer. So I called and said I wasn't going to come after all. Meanwhile, my poems had been given to, handed to Jim Wayne Miller, who read them, critiqued them, wrote notes on them, and wrote me a long letter saying that he was sorry that I had decided not to come. And I was so astounded by this amount of attention that I thought, well, maybe I should try and do something seriously with this. It struck me as likely that music was one of the major ingredients in the recipe that is Dana Wildsmith, the person. Right. What other influences and experiences are there, like specific kinds of music or, or specific poems and poets? Um, I'm, I have a pretty wide range of interests when it comes to music. I'll sit and listen to most any kind of music except jazz. Um, jazz, I keep waiting for them to get to the point, and it seems like they never do. <laughs> but um, but I have sung with uh, symphony choruses, so heavily classical stuff. I love folk music, uh, Appalachian folk music. I go to the Folk Week at, at Heinemann every summer and have for a long time and just spend the whole week enjoying that type of music. Uh, come from uh, a mother who has always sung. I don't remember ever Mama doing anything without singing as she was working, and so that had an influence on me, I think. So, yeah, it's a very instrumental part of who I am, and, and it feeds my art. Also, nature. I'm, I live on 40 acres of land. I've always enjoyed being an outdoors person. I'm a long-distance hiker, backpacker, and hate being indoors. Definitely what's going on in the outdoor world and the animals that live in the outdoor world, as well as dogs. I'm a big dog person. All of that's a part of uh, what feeds my writing. Your poem, Making a Living, was read on Garrison Keillor's Writer's Almanac broadcast a couple of years back. I always find it odd to hear others reading my work. How did you think Mr. Keillor did with yours? Oh, I tell people that I'm real reluctant to read it now because there's no way I can ever read it as well as he did. <laughs> he, I thought, man, he, he could read anything and make it sound wonderful. In fact, I have him reading it on my website simply because he did such a beautiful job with it that it makes me feel like a, a, a poor second when I try and read it myself. It really is quite nice, and we have a link to that on our own website that people can find or they can go through yours. Uh, would you care to read us one of your poems? I would. I would like to, what I would prefer to read is a poem, since I mentioned Jim Wayne Miller, who was my writing mentor, there's a poem I wrote after he died. I was asked to come back and speak at a memorial service at Heinemann, and um, Mike Mullins, who was the director there, told me I could say anything I wanted. I could speak. I could read some of my own work, whatever I wanted to do. And I thought, well, it doesn't seem appropriate to read my own work at somebody else, another writer's memorial service. So I thought I would write a poem for Jim, but I wanted to write it in his voice. I thought, it's his service. Why not let him talk? So I wrote a poem about about Jim Wayne Miller in his voice. It is in ballad meter because he was very much uh, a child of the mountains and grew up singing ballads. He's from Leicester, North Carolina, 
And so I put it in that meter because it seemed appropriate to him. And I'm telling you these details because I know this is going to be um, shared with other writers and they're interested in this sort of thing. I used his own words in many, many places. I took words, whole cloth, out of his poems and used them to inform my poem so that it would be his own poem. It starts off talking about him. It is a poem, uh, a, a piece that was written for a special occasion, a certain occasion, so it has references, specific references to Heinemann, but I think it becomes larger than that because at the end it ends up talking about um, just the what it's like to be a writer. So this is Jimmy Wayne Speaks from Heaven, Should There Be Such a Place. I come here tonight from my grandfather's side. I'm with him again, you see. He says he likes my poem about the ghost and the corn and me, but not so much my bad dream poem. He can't figure what it means. Poems don't explain, they report, I say. No explanation was given me when I dreamed it, but dreaming it meant I had to write it, since I rarely dreamed, I rarely slept. I've heard the rumored nonsense that I never slept, that I hunkered all night on my haunches, smoking the one in my hand while a second burned in the tray and cup after cup stained coffee rings on scattered letters and books. Some people say I drank while I should have been sleeping, but Ed can tell you the truth. I slept in my station wagon. Once, when McClanahan saw me there asleep in my parked white wagon, windows down for air, he reached inside to shake me awake and tell me to go up to bed. But all asleep, I nuzzled his hand like a lover's hand. He said he never again tried to wake me. I've become the stories about me, you see. That's as it should be. Stories are nothing but history, with a dollop of intrigue added, a pinch of horror, some murders, and a scoop of unrequited devotion. Both fact and fable go into the soup. I came to Heinemann in 79 through a storm of lightning and thunder. That's fact. But some say I rode a bolt of lightning in through a window, flashing out a black night like a hook on a car door handle. You who were here that night and you here tonight are like courting couples falling in love with words. Hindman is your lover's leap, and I came to tell you the price you'll pay for the company you keep. I kept company with the past, my past, long gone the way of family farms in Leicester, North Carolina. When I saw that old way of life was leaving, I wrote it down. I broke new ground with old words. My plowing pen back then turned rows on yellow legal pads through fields my grandfather had tilled. We write to save what we love. I thought if I could feel the ache left by his dying, by small farms disappearing, by time sweeping past like a tractor trailer with my new crop of stories and dreams, then maybe I could save myself from losing my native self that shared with children and foxhounds a way of sizing up how a situation smells. When America came to the mountains and named us Briars, I smelled a slick way of taking away who we were, so I helped Briar tell his own story and sing his ballads of an evening. I brought Briar back from a suburb north of himself, but somewhere I lost track of who was Briar and who was Jimmy. I stopped being able to say I. We are all the sums of ourselves, and I had become Jim Wayne. You see, I had written myself into a myth of myself. Miller's voice became Briar's voice, became a suitcase someone else would live a life out of. Folks who'd never met me knew me, quoted me, wrote papers on what I meant by what I'd said. 
Writers must be born again with each new book, and I learned to accept I'd have no say in who I became. It's like I said the summer I died of my cigarettes. Lo, these years I've embraced my lover, and now she's embracing me back. I took the chance you take when you get addicted to words. Like floodwaters rising in the night, your thoughts will take you over, become your deadly lover. You'll die in their twining arms and not even know you've died, or if you know, won't care. Better than bourbon whiskey is the sweet, slow glow of word intoxication. Get so you don't know what's real from what's in your head, but you love the made-up most. When the writing's hot, it's like a gift you probably don't deserve, but Lord have mercy you want it. You plead with the universe to spin you around to this fertile place once more, just once because the truth that drives you to drink is that you can't recall where it was. All you can do is retrace the steps that got you there before. You call it your process. Dana, when you started this poem, you kept in your car a tape of me talking to listen to while driving to get my voice in your head, but I turned on you, didn't I? Halfway between home and school, You had the notion that I was alive inside your radio, talking in 2005, almost a decade after I died. I was. I am. The heart of a writer can't die. Like radio waves to a distant star, its beat goes on, sounding and echoing back as alive as the body once was. Turn your radio on, Dana, and the poem you write will be me. Wow, thank you for sharing that. Sure. You've held the position of writer-in-residence at quite a number of different places, and among them is Devil's Tower National Monument and the Island Institute at Sitka, Alaska. Uh I find this concept very curious, but I just (laughs) have this image of someone sitting at the base of Devil's Tower trying to find a rhyme for that funky-looking mountain Richard Dreyfuss climb at Close (laughs) Encounters of the Third Kind. And you see... I didn't even realize, I didn't even make that connection until after they'd accepted me. I'm such a non-movie person. Everybody reminded me of that, and I went, oh, yeah, (laughs) I forgot about that. (laughs) How does one get to be a writer in residence, and what's the job actually like? Well, it it varies. Um, You can, there are many, many national parks or um, national monuments, which is also part of the park system, uh, which have writers in residence. And generally, uh, if you go online to the National Park Service and put artist residencies, um, they'll tell you about them. But generally, it's uh, just a time for you to work on whatever your current project is. But they they want you to do something like one program for the public at their interpretive center or something of that sort. And um, and quite often, they um, they want you to present some work for their uh, for their keeping, uh, especially if you're a visual artist, but a writer, maybe a, a poem about the place or something like that. But the requirements uh, of what they require of you are pretty light, generally, and it's mostly just a, a time for you to work in a, in a wonderful environment. Now, the Island Institute in Alaska was a whole different situation because they sponsor this the the Island Institute is a nonprofit organization on Sitka, Alaska, and they their goal is to get the arts incorporated into the lives of people who don't believe that the arts have anything to do with their life. And in that um, vein, they sponsor these writers and residents who specifically work with the native populations on the island. I when I was there, I um I spent about half my time writing and about half of my time teaching 
and I worked, I taught in Kikgushihin Elementary School. Kikgushihin means the bend in the river where the whales come. Um, and I, I taught fourth graders, which was just a delight and a wonderful experience. And then I taught an adult workshop for any adults on the island who wanted to come. And, and it wasn't just natives. The Tlingit people are the native people, but they specifically wanted to open it up to the native people. And so this, that was my purpose for being there. And it was, I was there for a month, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience having that uh, interaction with the people there on this island, which has no access other than by private plane or boat during, well, at all. <laughs> there is no bridge to the island. Um, so it's, and I was there the month of January. So, so you're pretty isolated. And uh, only two, two villages, there's Sitka and then one small native village on the whole island, and, and that's it. In the summertime, the cruise ships come there, but in the winter, it's just a very small population of people. I haven't been there in the winter. My wife grew up in Alaska, and so oh, really? we went a couple of years ago, but we didn't get down to Sitka. I think the the furthest south we got was Valdez. Ah. Um, yeah, it was, uh, of course, I've been all over the world, and I thought I had seen beautiful places, but I had never seen beauty like Alaska. Just astounding, as you know. Yeah, I went there and was suddenly very disappointed with the state in which I live <laughs> because <laughs> uh, we only think we have mountains here. Right, right. We say we're the mountain state and all, but not quite. Uh, you're leading three poetry workshops at the West Virginia Writers Conference this year. Right. Could you tell me a little bit about those? What I'm trying to focus on from different angles is basically using the material of your life to write. Uh, for the purpose of writing. Um, in one of them, I'm working a little bit on voice, how to get um, a good voice into telling your story. But in all of them, what I'm hoping people will come into my workshops to do is to know that um, what is in their own life, the things that they have lived, the things that are most important to them are things that can be turned in to a piece of writing which is of value to someone outside of just their family, not that that's not important too, but, um, but I want them to learn how to use their, the materials of their own lives as raw material and shape it into something that's stronger than just the facts themselves. Well, Dana Wildsmith, thank you very much for taking time out to talk to us, and thank you for sharing your talent with us with your poem today. Well, thank you, and I'm really looking forward to being in West Virginia in about a month or so. Dana Wildsmith can be found online at DanaWildsmith.com. You can also find Garrison Keeler's reading of her poem, Making a Living, on the Writer's Almanac website, both of which we have linked at our own website, wvwriters.org slash podcast.html. Next week on the show, we'll be speaking with romance novelist Pam Hansen, also known as Jennifer Drew, among other pen names. She'll be presenting workshops at this year's West Virginia Writers Summer Conference. That's June 12th through the 14th at Cedar Lakes in Ripley. Find out all the details about that at our own website, wvwriters.org. If you have comments or suggestions about the podcast, we can be reached by email at wvwpodcast at gmail.com. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker, whose albums can be found at popswalker.com and cdbaby.com. This podcast has been produced by Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded atop a hill in Mercer County. <laughs>